0: And to be sure and never miss an episode, I encourage you to follow the podcast using your favorite podcast software. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the show on a one-time basis at support.greatdetectives.net or by becoming one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month. Just go over to patreon.greatdetectives.net. Now it's time for this week's episode of Sam Spade. The original air date, April the 17th, 1949, and the title is Edith Hamilton. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective.
1: To Dr. Ludwig Zoya, 1241, Leavenworth, San Francisco, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, Edith Hamilton. No
2: caper?
1: No caper. Dear doctor, if I owe you an apology for not keeping you informed on the progress of the assignment and for letting it drag on as long as it has, then I'll have to go on owing you, which makes us even because you don't owe me anything. The start of it was a month ago. 32 days, 8 hours, 3 minutes and 45 seconds, to be exact. Ah, Mr. Spade. Dr. Sawyer.
3: Good to see you. Let me think. How long
1: is it? Uh, three years since I visited your That was when you were my
3: leading suspect in the Dunov case. Ah, yes. Poor Dunov. It was he who pointed out that we psychoanalysts are not unlike you, detective. Uh-huh. We probe, we question, we follow up clues in order to find out what is the dark secret which has nervously disturbed the human mind. <laughs> But we are limited. We have only our patients' words and our interpretations. Sometimes that is not enough. And that is why I need your help in this particular case. What case is that, Dr. Fry? Please do not interrupt the free flow of my thought. Pardon me. Naturally, my ego feels a certain resentment against my id for asking you for your help. What makes me think I need a detective? Well, uh, my id was just asking my ego the very same question. Ah, you too feel resentment. We must analyze that later. Bring me your dream material. Now, now, now to the key. Oh, yes. This woman was referred to me by her physician. She has suffered a complete nervous collapse because she thought she recognized a certain person crossing the street, a person she had not seen for years. Who was that? My patient's son died under mysterious circumstances three years ago, and the woman she thought she saw was her Mm daughter-in-law. It was widely reported in the newspapers at the time. Perhaps you remember it. Carter Hamilton? Carter Hamilton. Oh, Roanoke, Virginia, Hmm.
1: 1946. The, uh... Mother accused her son's wife of murdering him. Daughter-in-law was hauled up
3: before the grand jury, but not indicted. Dropped right out of sight uh, afterwards. Good you know that case. Well, actually, my patient is suffering from an agonizing sense of guilt. Unconsciously, she thinks that she herself murdered her son. Did she? Well, there may be something tangible at the bottom of so profound a feeling of guilt. You mean you want me to help you convince her that she really is guilty? No, 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 no. That is for me. But first, we must find out. What we must find out is somebody else, whether they are guilty.
1: What? Go all the way to Virginia, solve a crime that's been off the books for three no, years? No, 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 no. The daughter-in-law
3: is actually here in San Francisco. Well, oh, if I remember right, uh, she wasn't the only suspect. Well, whether she is innocent or guilty is of no importance. It is only important that we know. What? Excuse me. Yes, Mrs. Case. Mrs. Hamilton is
4: here, Dr. Zoya. Oh,
3: oh, good, Mrs. Case. Send her in. Uh, this is my case. i mean my, my, my patient. I want you to meet her. Oh, good afternoon, Mrs. Hamilton.
2: Good afternoon, Doctor.
1: The woman who stood framed in the doorway was a tall, commanding figure, impeccably dressed in black with an easy hundred grand worth of black pearls wound around her neck and a black veil covering her face. She walked in ahead of you, displaying not a sign of nervousness, and stopped directly in front of me. Very deliberately, she lifted the veil, revealing a youthfully old face, deeply tanned and set off by snow-white hair. Only her enormous violet eyes showed any expression. She stared at me for what seemed like a full
3: minute.
2: Yes, you do. You look like the other one.
3: Well, perhaps you had better explain, Mrs. Hamilton.
2: My daughter-in-law, Edith, was very much in love with another man before she married my son, Carter. He jilted her. Carter was second choice. It was I who talked her into marrying him. That's why I'll never rest until my son's death is avenged.
3: Ah, we must analyze this desire for vengeance. Oh
2: yes, yes. I had a dream last night. I dreamed that Edith was dead, stabbed with the same bone-handled hunting knife she used to kill my son. Oh, yes,
3: yes. It well, would no, Now you just lie down on the couch and relax, Mrs. Hamilton. I'll be with you in a moment. Come, Mr. Spayd. This is a most disturbing new development. Her dream. You must get to that girl as soon as possible. Her life may be in danger. You mean the old lady is mixed up enough to take a shot at her? Yeah. Here is the address. And take this briefcase. Why the briefcase? Well, there are legal papers in it regarding the Hamilton estate. They require her signature. I had Mrs. Hamilton arrange for you to take them to her instead of the attorney. I'm supposed to pose as a lawyer. While I'm there, I'm supposed to shake a confession out of her. And while I'm typing it up, I'm a
1: bodyguard. You're getting a lot for your money, Dr. Zoya. I spent the next hour or so in a newspaper morgue briefing myself on the old Hamilton case. The victim, Carter Hamilton, was the 28-year-old tail end of an old Virginia family whose blood was as rich as it was blue. The accounts of the killing were sketchy. At the old plantation, Carter Hamilton had been found one morning by his mother, dead and dead, of a stab wound. The knife was never turned up. Somebody had wiped everything in the room clean of fingerprints, which sounded like robbery until it was established that nothing was missing. The state was counting heavily on Mrs. Hamilton Sr.'s testimony in their case against the daughter-in-law. But an odd angle, I'd forgotten. The old lady had clammed up in front of the grand jury and the case was dropped for lack of evidence. Then there was a picture. She was the kind of a girl who looks her best in a riding outfit with her freckles showing and then surprises you by looking even better in full makeup with her shoulders showing. Candid is the word that best describes her features large, widely spaced eyes, a generous mouth, and an expression of unaffected sincerity. It was with a certain reluctant eagerness that I kicked myself up Stockton Street to Pine, across Pine to Bush, and up three flights of stairs. Mrs. Edith Hamilton?
4: Yes.
2: You must be from the attorneys. They wired me you were coming. Come in. Thank you. Not that I'm in hiding, but I'm curious as to how they got my address. Would you like a drink?
1: Well, not right now. Can I fix you one?
2: In about 20 minutes, maybe. I'm still wondering... How why... they
1: located you? I uh, think the elder Mrs. Hamilton saw you on the street.
2: Oh, is she here? In San Francisco?
1: Yes. Is that so surprising?
2: No, it's a large city. What is surprising is her staying on after learning that I was in town.
1: She's not very well. In fact, I uh, think she's had some kind of a nervous breakdown.
2: I'm sorry to hear that. I'm very fond of her, you know. In spite of everything.
1: No, I didn't know. Uh, maybe I should explain. I'm a private detective local. I was hired here in San Francisco to bring these papers to you.
2: Oh, you found
1: I seem to be a little slow introducing myself. I'm sorry. Sam Spade.
2: Well, if it had to be a detective, I'm glad it's you. But I can't help wondering why they didn't send a lawyer.
1: The lawyers cost $50 an hour. I only cost 10
2: Oh. In the private eye stories, it's always 25 bucks a day and expenses.
1: I wish those writers would get abreast of the times.
2: I'm sure they'll catch up. But if you're being paid by the hour, perhaps I can keep you here a little longer.
1: I'm glad you said that.
2: You'll remind me of someone.
1: Pleasantly,
4: I hope.
2: Yes. Oh, yes. And sadly, too. Your husband? If you don't know about that, I hope you'll never find out.
4: I'll leave that up to you.
2: His hair was like yours. He was thinner. And his eyes were blue. Maybe we shouldn't wait till five o'clock for that drink.
4: (laughs)
1: It was a funny kind of a drink. I'd never been hit by one before, Black Velvet. After two of them, I even began to hate myself a little less. And after the third, I decided there was some mystical connection between the drink and the color of her eyes. Black Velvet. I don't know much about music, but the way she went at the piano, you knew she wasn't afraid of it and probably wasn't afraid of anything. The pieces she played were like her. Bold and at the same time delicate. Simple, but with a web of complexities in the background. Brilliant, but always colored with sadness. What's the matter?
2: I want you to take me someplace. Where? Any place. Dinner. I don't I don't care. I I just want to go someplace with you.
4: With you? Hey. What is it, Sam?
1: I uh we were going out. I never paid much attention to San Francisco before I met her. It's quite a place. There's a little park up on Russian Hill where you can stand and look out over the houses of the marina to the Golden Gate. There's an island in San Francisco even worse than Alcatraz. It's in the middle of the lake at Fly and Zoo and instead of gorillas the population is nothing but monkeys. There are only two laundries in Chinatown. And out at Golden Gate Park, they have a band concert every Sunday afternoon. Maybe it was just the bright weather, but everything looked clean and shiny, as if somebody had taken a scrubbing brush to all the buildings. We even fed seagulls. At first, she never went any further into her past than the day before yesterday. I couldn't very well charge her for the progress I was not making on the case, so... When I learned that you'd sent old Mrs. H. to a nursing home for a two week rest and Edith did not need bodyguarding for the time being, I took a job that took me down to Los Angeles for a few days. I was awful glad to get back, and not because I don't like L.A. Oh, Sam.
2: Oh, darling, you were gone so long.
3: Hey, hey, the posies.
2: Oh, give them to me.
1: <laughs> well, I like that. This is the last time I make a fool out of myself buying flowers. I'll
2: love them later. Hey,
1: you're trembling. What happened while I was gone?
2: What happened to me happened before you went away. You know that. Sam, while you were gone, I had a lot of time and I did a lot of thinking. And I came to a very important decision. There was something I knew I had to tell you. And I wasn't so sure I could get through
1: it. Oh, look, Angel, it sounds serious. I don't think this is the time.
2: Oh, but it is. Yes, it is. Here, take it before I change my mind. What is it? I wrote it all down. Sit here, facing away from the piano. And don't say anything until you've read it
1: through. Well, okay. The opening sentence hit me straight between the eyes. It said, I, Edith Hamilton, of my own free will, make the following confession... It was addressed to the District Attorney of Roanoke, Virginia. Sam? Sam! And that, Dr. Zoya, was when I headed back to your office. Not to have my head examined, it was too late for that, but to tell you that I was resigning, Miss caper. On the way, I placed two ads in the classified sections of three papers, one under office space for rent and one under situations wanted. Ex-private detective desires position as night watchman, prison guard, asylum attendant, or any more pleasant line of work, and I really meant it. The United States Armed
3: Forces Radio Service is presenting the weekly adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. what is it? You're disturbed. Disturbed is not the word, Mr. Zoya. Is it because you've been with her a week and a half and there's yet no progress? Let us analyze the situation. The whole setup has been rotten from the beginning. You send me to that
1: girl under false pretences. You tell me to worm my way into her confidence. One
3: moment, did I tell you this? How else did you
1: expect me to get a confession out of her? I got the play when that old lady said I looked like a man Edith was once
3: in love with. You thought she'd fall for me, didn't you? You thought I'd take advantage of it, didn't you? Well, you could
1: hire somebody else to make love to her. I'm a detective, not
3: a gigolo. So she did make a confession to you. Why do you say that? When a patient comes to a psychoanalyst for help, a situation develops which we call transference. Now, this means that the doctor represents to the patient someone in whom he can confide, to whom he can unburden himself, such as a parent or a loved one. Well, then let's go not go on with important. it. No. Well, at the moment, at the moment, that is, what you feel toward me at the moment is what we call a negative transference. You wish to continue to make love to her, but you feel guilty about it, so you blame me. Well, what then? What are you driving at? In this love affair of yours, we have a similar situation. But what she feels for you only resembles love. It is transference. You resemble a former lover. And that is why it only took a week and a half for her to reveal everything. Sometimes I think I am too ethical or too old. Come now. Why don't you tell me? You feel better. There's
1: nothing to tell. She had it written down. I didn't read past the word confession. Well, what did you do with it? I destroyed it. I see. Well. Ah!
3: Now, Miss Case. Miss Case. Miss Case, what what is it?
4: Mrs. Hamilton.
3: She's. Ah! It was
1: Mrs. Hamilton, all right. But she didn't look much like the dignified old lady I had met in your office ten days before. Her high-piled white hair was hanging in two ratty pigtails. She was wearing a nurse's cape over a flannel hospital nightgown, and in her hand was a thirty two caliber gun. Mrs. Hamilton,
3: why did you leave the nursing home? You
2: lied to me, Dr. Zoya. That place is nothing but an asylum. Well, you know
3: that isn't true. Come give me the gun. You're tired. You must rest.
2: Yes. Now I can rest. I've killed her.
3: What?
1: Miss Casey's fainted. Get some water. Let me see that gun. I'm going to Edith's place. Get an ambulance over there and don't stop to analyze anything. Edith was slumped forward over the piano keyboard. She was barely breathing. The old lady wasn't much of a hand with a gun. Four of the slugs had punctured the big studio window. One had torn a flesh wound in the shoulder. The other had penetrated the right side, just below the ribcage, and there was not much bleeding at the wound of exit. Her face was pale and the skin cold of a touch. I gambled on a hunch she was suffering mainly from shock, moved her over to a couch, threw a blanket over her, and poured hot coffee into her. After a bit, her color started coming back. Then she opened her eyes.
4: Oh. I
2: thought you went away. I uh, must have dreamed it.
1: Why still, so, Angel? Don't try to talk.
2: Oh. Well, Alexa, the... please. Please. Don't let them know what happened. Don't... Take
1: it easy. It's only the ambulance.
2: Oh, I've got to save Mother Hamilton, you see. I've got to get rid of that knife and... Uh...
1: I rode in the ambulance with her. She was still unconscious when they carried her into surgery. They told me she was out of danger. When they threw me out that night, I went back to her apartment. What she'd said about saving old Mrs. Hamilton and getting rid of the knife gave me a new slant on that confession I hadn't read. The pieces were still on the floor where I'd thrown them. It took me nearly an hour to put the jigsaw together. And when I did, it was still a puzzle. In her story of that morning three years ago, she confessed to finding the body before the official discovery, to hiding the knife and wiping the doorknobs and surfaces in the death room to get rid of fingerprints. She couldn't remember anything that had happened in the eight hours between 1 a.m. when she had left her husband drinking in the library and gone upstairs to bed, and approximately 9 in the a.m. when she found herself standing over his body with a knife in her hand. I stretched out on the sofa to think it over. And then I drew a blank. Spade.
3: Mr. Spade, wake up. Uh, what? How did you get in here? Well, I've been reading that so-called confession. Very interesting. We must analyze it. You analyze it. I'm going to call the hospital. I've just come from there. How is she? How is she? Uh, physically, nothing serious. Mentally, she's not so good. She keeps asking for you. Yeah? She thinks you can help her. Uh, it's definitely there, the delusion that she's in love with you. What makes you so sure it's a delusion? Don't answer that. When can I say? her? Well, it's best that you wait until she comes home. That will be next Tuesday. Look, you're supposed to be a first-class head doctor. Can't you cure this amnesia of Edith? I thought I explained to you last night when we were discussing transference. Please, Dr. Zoya, please. I know you mean well, but don't. I beg of you. Well, it's not important. When she gets to know you better, she will realize that her love for you is irrational. And then she will remember everything. I kept myself busy
1: like crazy until Edith checked out of the hospital. There wasn't much talk between us at first. Even her music was reticent, little rambling improvisations that sounded like children's songs or lullabies with something just a little acid mixed with their simplicity. Then as the days went by and her strength and confidence started to return, her music became serene and graceful. It became like her as she sat there at the piano and front of the big window with its afternoon sun streaming down on the San Francisco hilltops while at the same time the April fog bank started its nightly prowl in through the golden gate. And that was like her too, and like her music. Brilliant, but with a touch of melancholy. And then one day it was all warmth and brilliance and she was smiling. Sam? Yeah, Angel.
2: I remember now. So that's it. I woke up this morning feeling so happy. And then I knew I was on the verge of it. Because I knew that however bad the truth might be, it was worth not remembering. Even if I was a murderer, you'd rather know, wouldn't you? No, no, I wouldn't. Why? I thought I knew you so well. (sighs) Darling, are you angry?
1: Yeah. But...
2: At me? Yes,
1: you. The first time I came here, I tried to give you a fair warning. You should have figured the score when I told you I was a private detective. You'd even read the stories where, in the end, the detective doesn't have any choice but to turn in the beautiful dame, no matter what his personal feelings are. Maybe you didn't think they were true to life, or maybe you thought I was an exception to the rule because you are. Well, I'm not. The truth is, I was hired to get a confession out of you any way I could, and I think in the back of your mind you've known it all along. You want to have your confession and eat it, too. You probably be learned as a child that it's smarter to tell all and be patted on the back than to be found out and get spanked.
2: How can you be so smug and... so self-satisfied and so... whatever made me think I was in love with you? Just because you looked a little like someone who I... Zoya
1: was right. Only he thought you were kidding yourself, too. Zoya called a transference. I call it baloney. Goodbye. You
4: come back here. You can't just leave like... <laughs>
1: That, Dr. Sawyer, is why I never heard her confession. It turned into a lover's quarrel. But I understand she paid $25 an hour to rattle it off to you. I have before me your telephonic message. I haven't had time to analyze it, but at first glance, I take it to mean that Edith was innocent of everything except destroying evidence. Motive to spare her mother-in-law the anguish of knowing that her son was a suicide. I'm sorry, now that I know what her story was, that I didn't stay to hear her tell it. But that, as you would say, is not important. At least I cured her of that love delusion you were so worried about, even though it took a month to do it. Period and a report.
2: Oh, Sam. Sacrificing herself so self-sacrificingly rather than shatter a mother's delusion.
1: Have some other time, huh?
2: I'm sorry. I'll go tight time.
1: Hey, sweetheart. Sam, where did you go? I'm downstairs in the
2: bar. Sam, there's so much noise on the line, I can't... I'm
4: drowning my sorrows.
2: Well, you don't need to shout. Oh, hold the line a minute. Yes? Yeah? May I help you? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was hoping I might find Mrs. Spady. Hello? Would you like to leave a message? Mm. Tell him Edith Hamilton called. Oh.
3: Oh! Jeff, yeah, are you still on the phone? Ooh.
2: Oh, pardon me. Y- yes, dear?
3: What happened? Are you taking
2: a bath? Oh, nothing, nothing at all. One moment, please. Miss Hamilton, I have him on the line. He's, he's downstairs in the bar. And if you'll hurry, you can just catch him, I'm sure. Oh, downstairs. Well, I will hurry. Thank you. You're welcome. Sam, are you still on the line?
4: What's the matter with you?
2: Nothing, nothing. Just go ahead and draw on your sorrows. But don't get loaded.
4: Good night, Sam. Well, uh, good night, sweetheart.
2: I'm going to take piano lessons.
1: The Adventures of Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, are
5: produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Dove. Marine Tuttle is effing.
0: Welcome back. Well, Sam Spade was a series that really developed a very strong feel for how the program goes in terms of how the episodes are named and the general format of the opening and closing. And while those can provide some great structure for both the audience and the creative team, If you're not careful, it can become kind of a straight jacket where stories have to fit that setup, and this is a good case of making an exception to keep the show fresh and keep it going, and I think it works really well. Not having it be titled a caper is something that makes sense, because there's somewhat of a sense of fun and lightheartedness, which this episode doesn't have much of. Sam is really put through the ringer in this episode. There's this guilt over his initial assignment as he starts to fall for Edith, and then this very present fear of losing her based on what the psychologist told him. And so Sam is far more vulnerable than usual in this episode, which I think adds more depth to his character. Also, I did kind of like the hesitation by Effie about what to do when Edith showed up at the office, given that she's carrying a torch for Sam. And how she ultimately did do the right thing, I thought that that was, it it was a nice little bit of writing and well performed by Lorene Tuttle. This episode did not have as many laughs as we typically associate with a Sam Spade episode. But this week, we're going to bring you a little bit of a comedy bonus with Howard Duff appearing as Sam Spade in an episode of Joan Davis Time. Sam Spade is featured in the second half of the episode, and listening to the program, I don't think the first half was necessary to understand the basic plot. Uh, We included the narration, which should do an ample job of explaining the general thrust of what had gone before. So it'd be silly for me to repeat it. Now, Joan Davis is not a particularly well-known figure today, but she was a pretty significant star on radio and later on on television. She made her radio premiere in 1941 and had her first uh, big role as the co-star of the Seal Test Village Store from 1943 to 1945, where she played the owner-operator of a tea room. And then this continued uh, with uh, Joni's Tea Room from 1945 to 47, And then she got a new series, this one, called Joan Davis Time, where she once again owned a tea room with Lionel Stander, playing the the tea room manager, and we'll hear a little bit of Mr. Stander. Stander had a very long career in Hollywood, playing these sort of lovable lugs. He was miscast as Archie Goodwin in the 1930s Nero Wolf movies with Edward Arnold, but continued to act into the 90s. I think the first place I ever saw Mr. Stander was in a 1990s heart-to-heart TV movie. So, with that information out of the way, let's go ahead and take a listen to this uh, portion of Joan Davis' time from January the 24th, 1948. <laughs>
5: Well, friends, so far, Joan Davis's attempts to become glamorous have proven futile. Tonight, despite her newly acquired slinky black gown, her exotic silken veil, and her mysterious perfume, she sits at home alone. Instead of an ardent admirer listening to her precious words, Joanie is listening to the closing words of her favorite radio detective, Sam Spade.
1: And that Effie winds up the strange case of the murdered millionaire. Gosh,
6: I never thought his
2: wife had done it, Sam. She seemed so sweet. Yeah,
1: she was sweet, all right, Effie, and so was the
5: poison she put in his coffee. Good
2: night, Sam. Good
5: night, sweetheart. And so concludes another chapter in the adventures of Sam Spade, brought to you every week at this time by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Listen in again next Sunday when...
7: Gosh, I sure love that Sam Spade program. There's always some glamorous woman with a problem who comes to him for help. She wish my life was exciting like that. I wonder what it would be like if I was one of those mysterious women. Maybe my husband was just murdered and I go to Sam Spade for help. And he falls in love with my beauty. Oh, I'm kind of tired. Gee, can you imagine me being a glamorous woman married to some rich old millionaire? Maybe even an English duke with a classy Reginald-type name. Oh, It's so sleepy. Oh, so glamorous, too. I am so sleepy.
4: <laughs> Reginald.
7: Oh, Reginald. Reginald, my dear, I... I say, Reginald, you're not even listening
3: to me. Oh, I'm perfectly sorry, Joan.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me.
3: I say you're not sorry you married me, are you, old heifer?
4: My <laughs> Reginald,
3: what makes you say that? Oh, I
4: know. You seem to be
3: cooling off towards
7: me lately. Cooling off? As yes, I felt it yesterday when you tried to knife me.
4: <laughs> oh,
7: how utterly silly. There's bound to be a tip in
3: any marriage. True. But somehow we don't seem to be so happy as, as when we were first married. Yeah, that seems like ages and ages ago. How long has it been? (laughs) Two days.
7: (laughs) Oh, well, I may as well admit it, Reddy. I I am disappointed in your lying to me.
3: Lying to you?
7: Yes, when I married you, you told me you were worth $49 million. And what do I find out now? You're only worth 48
3: Oh, darling, I'll be worth more soon. After all, remember my position. I'm second in line... For my father's
4: estate.
7: Who's ahead of you?
3: My father.
4: <laughs>
7: oh, shadow. <shut
3: up.
7: laughs> <laughs> well, it's no use, Reginald. I, I want to be free. You hear, free?
3: I'm going to give you a phone never. Wait, here comes the butler with my nightly bowl of chili and beans. Here you are, sir. Thank you, Gay. Oh, you
7: and your chili and beans. I want a divorce.
3: Oh, come, come, Joan. Forget the divorce and have some chili and beans. I'd
7: rather have a divorce. You can have custody of the chili and beans.
3: Oh, <laughs> this is delicious. I just adore chili and beans. I... I... I...
5: <laughs> well, what do you know? The old boy's fainted.
7: Fainted? Nothing. He's dead. See? Rigor mortis is setting in. <laughs>
0: How
5: do you know?
7: He's more lively than usual.
5: <laughs> and anyway,
7: we'll both say it was heart failure.
5: Whatever you say, gorgeous, but the police may suspect poison.
7: In that case, I'll need help. I know. I'll go see the famous private eye, Sam Spade. He'll help me because I'm glamorous and gorgeous and mysterious.
3: <laughs>
1: Private eye, my name is Sam Spade. Thank you. Anyhow, I'm Sam Spade, license number one three seven five nine six. Today, the, day, the uh, day started off pretty badly for me. First, I was rudely awakened out of a deep sleep by my alarm clock ringing. I jumped out of bed, took a quick shower, and walked to the elevator. Then I turned around and walked back into my room. I'd forgotten to
4: dress.
0: (laughs) After I, uh,
1: after I dressed, I went to my office. When I got there, I found three corpses on the floor, probably clients who had been killed after being followed to my office. Luckily, it was a Tuesday, so I put them outside for the trash (laughs) collector. Then I took a big slug of straight rye. I hate rye, but what could I do? There wasn't any white bread.
4: (laughs) I was just
1: taking some butter for a chaser when my secretary Effie, a doll, announced a client. The door opened and there, standing framed in the doorway, was the stuff that dreams are made of. I knew it was time to put away the tin soldiers. <laughs> this was for keeps. A chorus of five hundred angels singing a Cole Porter torch song rang in my ears when she spoke.
4: Is this the office of Sam Spade, my right? <laughs> Your name is Joan
1: Davis. You live at 6,999 Kensington Road. Your husband just died. You want me to find you an alibi before the police get there and call it murder? How did you know? Well, in this business, you have to take a wild guess now and then.
7: (laughs) You're pretty clever.
1: Yes, and you're beautiful. Miss me, baby.
4: (laughs) Why not?
1: What a kiss she gave me. When I released her from my embrace, I was wearing her false eyelashes, and she wore... She wore my vest with my badge pinned to it. We, uh, returned each other's property. And, uh, then I started questioning her. Uh, tell me, baby, did you, uh, notice anybody following you to my office?
7: Well, I did notice a man wearing a green velvet cape, a top hat, and a red cane. He had a long black beard checkered knickers and carried a bowling ball under each arm.
1: Just another guy in a crowd, huh?
7: Yeah, I wouldn't have even noticed him if he hadn't had a box of eggs sticking out of his pocket. Let's
1: see. Uh, how did you happen to come to me?
7: Good housekeeping recommended you.
1: <laughs> well, uh, let's get down to the case. I'll uh, need some facts, not many, just enough to confuse me. Uh, first thing we have to prove is that you didn't have a motive. Now, tell me, did your husband have any enemies?
2: Just me.
4: Anybody, uh,
1: hate him enough to want to see him dead? Just me.
4: Are
1: there many people who might profit from his death?
4: Just me.
1: Good. At least there's no motive.
4: Just
7: me. But it's so nice of you to say so, Sammy,
1: boy way she said, Sammy, boy. Sort of poured out like honey. (laughs) I was about to take her in my arms again when I realized it might be safer to visit the scene of the crime. I helped her into her huge mink coat that was made from at least 70 perfect minks, all of them alive. (laughs) We uh, took a cab over to her place. She was wearing a perfume so dangerous it could only be refilled with a doctor's prescription.
4: (laughs) And as an
1: added precaution, after it was refilled, both the prescription and the doctor had to be destroyed.
4: <laughs> her front
1: door was opened by a sinister looking butler who drew her to him and kissed her warmly on her lips. Then, as the butler took my coat, he pressed the cold blade of a knife against my throat and said,
5: Will you have tea or coffee with your lunch? My
1: trained detective instinct told me that this boy would bear watching. <laughs> I spoke to him in my usual cold and personal private eye type manner. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to see the body.
5: Yes, sir. Whom shall I tell it is calling? <laughs> Never mind. Has anybody been here yet? Yes, yeah, a policeman. The heat. What do you want? He was selling tickets to the policeman's ball.
7: <laughs> but, Gage, what did he do when he noticed my husband's body lying on the floor?
5: He sold him two tickets. <laughs>
4: me out to
1: the patio where her husband lay dead. On the table was an unfinished bowl of chili and beans. You could tell her husband had loved chili and beans because his body had a disappointed look on its face. I decided it was time to stop playing. I'd already seen what I had to know. I looked at her and I let her have it without pulling any punches. All right, baby, why'd you kill him?
7: What? But how did you know? I mean, that is, I... I
1: uh, found this letter from the insurance company in the hall. It's dated last week and addressed to you. Read it.
7: Here, madam... In answer to your letter, we would like to inform you that your husband carried $84 million in life insurance payable to you as a beneficiary at the rate of $15 a week for 9,000 years.
4: Well, uh, baby,
1: there's no use kidding me any longer. At last, I found the motive.
7: Look, honey, Sammy boy,
4: a- $84 million is
7: a lot of dough. Forget the law. Think of me and you on the beach at Black Key. Moonlight, tropical water. We could live, Sammy boy. The moon is low and big, Sammy boy. You feel like you can reach out and touch it, Sammy boy. Oh, you and me, Sammy boy. Sit upon my knees, Sammy boy. Oh, you and me and 84 million dollars. And all you have to do is destroy that letter and not turn me in.
1: Her deep gray eyes were like flashing stars. Her red lips looked soft and appealing. I was about to say yes, but then... But I knew I couldn't. I was a private eye, and I had an obligation. If I let her off, I'd never again be able to look another private eye in his private eye.
4: <laughs>
1: I, uh I clenched my jaw. Not very hard. It's very tender on account of I have to clench it so often in my line of work. And I said, No soap, sister. You mean Yeah. I'm turning in.
7: But they'll give me the chair. Phil. Wait a minute. What am I getting excited about? What if you do have the motive? You can't prove I killed my husband. Why, you can't even prove how he was killed.
1: Suddenly, I realized she was right. I didn't know how her husband was killed, nor could I prove that she did it. But then I noticed something jumped from the pocket of her mink coat. I picked it up. Then I looked at her husband's body again. I exposed his midriff. There were strange welts on it, welts that hadn't bruised the flesh on the outside at all. But suddenly, it came to me. I knew the whole story. I spun around to her. Okay, sister, I know how you did it.
7: I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You know
1: that your husband loved chili and beans, and so he ate it every night.
7: What about it?
1: I found the evidence. that will send you to the chair, baby. It came out of your coat, and here it is, a Mexican jumping bean.
7: <laughs> so what
1: does that prove? It proves that you substituted for the regular kidney beans and his chili some Mexican jumping beans, and he was kicked to death from the inside. <laughs>
7: I did it! I did it! But please, please, don't let me go to the chair, please, please! I don't want to die! I don't want to die! I
4: don't want to die! Die, die,
7: die, die, What's what's the matter? What are you screaming What's the matter? Well, gee, Lionel, I I must have had a nightmare. Yeah.
3: I figured you might feel bad about your glamour campaign falling through, so I dropped by to ask you to go to a movie. Suddenly I heard you screeching. Yeah, and
7: and what a terrible dream I had. Why, do you know, I I actually dreamed you were married to me, and I killed you.
3: Thanks, boss. That was the merciful thing to do.
7: (laughs) Oh, Lionel... Gosh, even in dreams, I can't be glamorous. I, I don't know. My life these days seems to be an empty shell. I just keep laughing on the outside and crying on the inside.
3: Yeah, I'll cut it out, boys. What's so
7: funny? You can drown that way.
5: <laughs> Joni will be back in a minute, but while she's gone, here's something well worth remembering. You hear democracy talked about a lot these days, so much that we almost forget the true meaning of the word. We know that democracy means government by the people, but what is sometimes forgotten is that all of you are the people, and America will continue to be America only if each of us rededicates himself to the meaning and practices of democracy, taking an active interest in the affairs of our community, voting regularly and thoughtfully. In short, we must recognize our responsibilities as citizens of a free nation and discharge those responsibilities to the best of our ability. Democracy is being judged in the world of today on the basis of how well we make freedom work in America. Other people in other lands will decide whether they want freedom for themselves by seeing how effectively it lives and functions in the everyday life of this country. And what they decide will affect you and your family and every man, woman, and child in America. Freedom is everybody's job in this free nation. Make sure that you make freedom your job. And now here's Joni again.
7: Well, I guess most of our listeners know that the radio detective Sam Spade is played by a mighty fine actor Look whose like real name is Howard Duff. So now I'd like to thank Howard for his swell job tonight. Thanks, Howard. Well,
1: thank you, Joey. Being with you was more fun than a barrel of corpses. <laughs>
7: <laughs> you know, I just love that detective stuff. I had a boyfriend once who was a private eye, uh, but he specialized in tricky disguises. His
4: disguises?
7: Yeah. One day he was standing on a street corner disguised as a mailbox.
1: Disguised as a mailbox.
7: What happened? Well, he looked so real that before he knew it, a lady shoved a package down his throat and slammed his lower lip. (laughs) Oh, well, enough of my lip. Good night, Sammy boy. Good night, sweetheart. (laughs) Sweetheart. Oh boy, goodbye now.
0: Welcome back. An interesting uh, bit of radio, and you could definitely tell Howard Duff was struggling to keep his composure with some of the silly lines in this script. think he acquitted himself well overall. And I hope you enjoyed that little bit of extra Howard Duff slash Sam Spade. And now it is time for us to go ahead and thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to James, Patreon supporter since October, currently supporting us at the detective sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month. Again, thank you so much for your support, James. And that will actually do it for today. A reminder that if you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow us with your favorite podcast software to be sure you never miss an episode. We'll be back next Monday with another episode of Sam Spade. But tomorrow, listen for yours truly, Johnny Dollar with Bob Bailey, where... You can find that out for yourself.
6: All right. Now, now listen. Truly, move me down here in the infirmary. I roomed upstairs with Jojo Panny. You know him? No, don't believe I do. And Carthy from the Hay States. He got his sabbaticum three weeks ago. Paroled. Uh-huh. Well, I've been in the camp with a lot of guys, but Jojo Panny <laughs> takes a cake. He's got a little old five year trick to put in. <laughs> this Jojo, he does it like a vacation. You know, a real picnic. <laughs> Every time he gets a chance out in the yard, he's taking sun so we don't get the color, see? Yeah. And yeah. <clears throat> when they push him in with me, I notice this, and I get to going over in my head. Yeah. Why does a guy whistle in a cell block, Johnny? Why, why is he treating it like a rest home? Short term. He's got something outside waiting. That, that's it, baby. He's got something waiting for him outside. Something that he knows will keep safe. Money. Thought you said this was legitimate, Mike. <laughs> It is, it is. Now, wait. I didn't ask Jojo anything about this. No, I figured it out myself. Then a couple of times I hear him yelling in his sleep. McCormick, he yells. McCormick. Huh? Eh? Makes sense now, Johnny?
4: Not John. Ah,
6: the big heist, Johnny, the big heist. A few years ago, a rich guy named McCormick out on Long Island or someplace like that gets turned over for $100,000 worth of jewelry. You remember? Vaguely. Eh, well, I'm thinking that Jojo Penny was in on it somewhere. Mm. Mm. Else why would he be singing and whistling and chilling himself around this flytrap for five years? Else why would he be talking about that when he's sleeping? McCormick. McCormick. Yeah. Maybe you've got something, Mike. Ah, I know I got something, Johnny. And you got something, too. It... <coughs> oh, no, Mike. Take it easy. Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. Don't you see? The insurance company must have a reward out. They always do a reward. Yeah, but Mike, look. I tell you, Joe, Joe, is the ginzo that done the job. Or he knows who did it. So you look into it. Work on it. Maybe turn up the stuff and get the reward. Good clean coin. Yeah.
0: I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram Instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.